Our sermon this morning is from, uh, well, we're continuing to work through Matthew chapter 1, through Jesus' genealogy. Uh, last week we looked at uh, Tamar and, uh, and her story in Genesis. Uh, now we're going to look at the character of Rahab, the next uh, female who's mentioned in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. We'll also be working from Joshua chapter 2, the entire thing, and then Joshua chapter 6, verses 6 through 15. So put your, uh, put your finger on those chapters as, uh, as, as well. Like we mentioned last week, uh, the, the genealogy of Jesus, and specifically the fact that females, multiple females, five females are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus, uh, is, is significant, right? Jesus lived in a culture that, um, by and large, discounted and disregarded uh, women, saw them as weak, saw them as dependent, saw them as without having value, right? The only thing that women are good for is, is bearing children, bearing a male heir. And once they do that, they've served their purpose and we have no use for them. That's kind of the, the prevailing spirit of the age, when Jesus uh, was, was born. And Jesus kind of came both before his birth and after and kind of upended that. Kind of, kind of you know, uh, pressed back against that with his words and with his actions. Uh, Jesus demonstrated that, that women matter and that they are, you know, strong and that their contributions are worthwhile and they're not, they're not second-class citizens. Jesus uh, recognized and understood and, and demonstrated with his life that, that uh, men and women are created in the image of God, that they're equal before God. Jesus interacted with women. He uh, talked with women, taught women, invited women to follow him as his disciples. He, you know, uh, invited women to take prominent roles in his life and in his, his ministry. And even before Jesus was born, he, like we said, he included women in his uh, genealogy so that, uh, so that, you know, for all time, right, for, for generations to come, people could see that these, these women, uh, you know, that, that we could, you know, appreciate and, and um, recognize their faith and the contributions that they, that they made. So the, the world, right, the world says women don't matter, right? Only Jesus matters. Only Jesus' male ancestors are of any relevance to us. Women don't. Jesus presses back and says, you know, women, my mother matters. My, my female ancestors matter. I mean, even today, a lot of, a lot of women feel that Christianity is hostile toward them. Like it's a it's a boys club or it, nobody cares what women have to say. They're not allowed to aspire toward meaningful uh, ministry. A lot of men within Christianity kind of perpetuate that. They ignore women. They disenfranchise them they, so that they can kind of consolidate and hold all the, the power. And Jesus, right, among, among other places, the, the genealogy of Jesus is meant to uh, push back against that sinful tendency and just show us the value of, of women and the value of biblical uh, femininity. So, with that, with that kind of uh, introduction to the series in view, kind of recognizing the valuable contributions of women, we looked at Tamar, we're going to look at Rahab uh, this, this week. And so we're going to read from Matthew chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, and then we're going to look at her story in Joshua chapter 2. It reads, Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab. Amminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. And Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. All right, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, uh, we pray your blessing on these next few minutes. Lord, we thank you that you have spoken to us through your word. We pray that you would take, uh, take these next few minutes this morning and, and open our eyes to it. 
Open our eyes so that we can behold uh, the glory of your word. Help us to, to read it and listen to it and meditate on it and be shaped by it. Lord, we don't want to be a people who, who presume to come to your word and, and stand in judgment over it and, and you know, consider with pride whether or not this applies to our lives or you know, how we are going to apply it to our lives on our terms. Rather, we want to be a people who are humble and we let your word stand in judgment over us and speak to us and inform how we live our lives. So please speak to us this morning and please change us to be more like Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Okay, like I said, Joshua chapters 2 through 6, flip there. While you're doing that, we'll get acquainted with the backstory. Uh, The backstory is, so, you know, taking from where we, starting from where we left off last week, Genesis 37 is uh, Judah and Tamar. So Judah's brother is Joseph. Joseph goes to Egypt and he kind of is, you know, you know, is elevated to vice president essentially over all of Egypt, second in command under Pharaoh himself. There's a big famine in the land and Judah and his brothers go to Egypt to get food. They think their brother Joseph is dead. They go to Egypt to get food. And when they do, they're brought before Joseph. They don't even realize it because he's grown up. They don't recognize him anymore. And Joseph, after some, some story and some twists and turns, invites them to come live with them, right? You guys are suffering under this terrible famine in, uh, in uh, Israel, right, in, in Canaan. And so we want you to, to uproot, bring your family here to Egypt. We've got a nice setup here. Uh, we've got all the food that we could ever need. So come here and live with me. And they do. But years go by, generations go by. Uh, you know, Joseph, this kind of like hero, this rock star hero in Egypt who essentially saved the entire civilization from dying, he dies. And his legacy, you know, kind of out, you know, outlives him for a little bit, but eventually it's kind of, kind of just, you know, fades. And people kind of forget about who Joseph was and his brothers, you know, Judah and the rest of them, they die. And, and so before, you know, a few generations later, the, the Pharaoh doesn't see all of the Israelites as the, the descendants of and kind of the legacy of this rock star hero, Joseph, uh, Joseph that you know, saved our nation. He sees them as a threat, right? They're multiplying, and he says, man, there, there are a lot of foreigners here, and if, they, if we don't uh, you know, keep them under control, they are going to overrun us, right? Some other nation is going to come in and threaten us, and they're going to side with the other nation instead of with, with us. The, these Israelites are a threat, so he enslaves them and kind of consigns them into forced uh, labor. And, and conditions are horrible, and, you know, Israelites are dying and being beaten and being mistreated, and eventually Moses rises up and leads them out of Egypt and leads them, you know, through the, the Red Sea, you know, uh, Moses and them, they cross the Red Sea, they wander around in the Israel, or they wander around, wander around in the wilderness for decades, and eventually they come uh, to just, uh, just east of the Jordan River. If you've got the, the Jordan River here, they come east of it to the plains of Moab. Uh, and the, the Israelites kind of land, land there, and they're intending to cross over the Jordan River and take possession of the Promised Land, take possession of Canaan. And that's kind of right where we pick up our story in Joshua chapter 2. They're hanging out east of the Jordan, getting ready to cross the Jordan. And the first kind of main city that they're going to come to when they cross the Jordan is Jericho. And they're like, we're getting ready to cross. We're getting ready to to go into Canaan. And we want to take possession of it. So we need to send out some spies so that they can kind of gather intel, run reconnaissance, and tell us what we're about to step into as soon as we get to the other side of the Jordan River. 
First one, and Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go view the land and especially view Jericho, right? I suspect we're going to encounter resistance. Things are going to be tough when we get over there. So you guys tell us what we're about to walk into. And they came to the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. The Israelites crossed Jordan, uh, the end of Canaan, into Jericho, uh, into the house of Rahab. And Rahab is a, is, is a prostitute, right? She, she's a pagan woman living in a pagan city. Uh, and she is a professional, you know, fornicator, adulterer. Um, you know, it, I mean, co- commentators are all over the map here. Um, but, in, in, you know, some think that this was a profession that she chose. Maybe some of the, the, you know, the ones who understand the culture a little bit more probably recognize that she might have been forced into this, uh, this situation. Maybe she was sold into it by, by someone who needed, she was trafficked into it or something like that. Either way, that's who, that's who Rahab is and that's where she is. She's a, a pagan woman living in Jericho in Canaan, a prostitute, knows nothing of the God of Israel, cares nothing for the God of Israel, has no regard for the God of, of Israel. Rahab's name, uh, in, in, like the, the name Rahab means pride and insolence and savagery. That's, that's like what the, the definition of the name means. If you do a word search for Rahab and find it elsewhere in the Bible, uh, other places in the Bible, the name Rahab refers to, uh, you know, enemies of God, the, the, these like Gentile uh, national superpowers, Egypt and the like, who were, you know, rebelling against God and God was, you know, storing up wrath against them and was going to bring judgment against them. Or the name Rahab uh, refers to and has the connotation of almost like the Loch Ness Monster, like a mythical sea dragon that God is going to eventually cut and, and pierce and kill and kind of carve up into, into pieces. That's what, so Rahab's name does not have the connotations of you know, love and joy and, and peace and happiness like maybe a name you, you would think you would name your child. It means pride, insolence, savagery, rebellion against God, judgment from God. She doesn't have a, a noble profession. She doesn't have a, a godly legacy. She doesn't have, uh, you know, a storybook life by any stretch. But these guys come to her house and they say, hey, we need a place to crash. Well, ideally off the radar, off the grid, you know, not outside of the view of the, the authorities in your city. And it was told, verse 2, it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman, Rahab, had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. And I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them in the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the way to the Jordan as far as to the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So, so the king hears of these Israelite spies, sends people to the home of Rahab to try to find them. Rahab lies to them, right? Uh, tells the government officials these guys had already left, sends them kind of out on this, this wild goose chase, says you better go quickly so that you catch up to them, uh, not knowing that she's actually hiding them in her, in her attic. Verse 8, before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land 
and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Right? She says, I, I know who you are. Your reputation has preceded you. The reputation of your people and your nation has preceded you. Right? I could be wrong, but I think that you're you and your people are going to destroy and defeat me and my people. Verse 10, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea, that's Exodus chapter 14, uh, before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the kings of the Amorites who were beyond Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. That's Numbers chapter 21, where Israel basically comes through and decimates two entire countries, reduces them to rubble, uh, takes all their stuff, kills all of their people, and these stor- Rahab has heard of these stories, and she's like, God is on the side of these people. Supernatural things are happening to help them, you know, to, to help preserve them. Supernatural things are, are, you know, happening to help them defeat their enemies. And we are afraid. Verse 11, as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that, I, that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my mother and my, brother and my, my brothers and my sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Don't kill me. Don't kill my family. I am uh, helping you. I am taking care of you. And I'm hoping that you will return the favor and be merciful to me when you guys inevitably overtake our city. And the men said to her, verse 14, the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the wall, for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills where the pursuers will find you. Hide there for three days until your pursuers have returned, and then you may go your way. The Israelites promise to show her mercy. She kind of lets them out of this secret escape hatch where they're kind of allowed to get out of the city without having to go through the public gate. They make their escape. Verse 17, the men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. In other words, we promise we're not going to go back on our word. We are going to, to be faithful to what we're telling you we're going to do. Verse 18, But behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather us into your house, your father, or you shall gather into your house, your father, your mother, your brothers, all of your father's household. And then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood will be on his own head, and we will be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. Right. so here's the conditions. Hang this cord, stay in the house. It's very important that you stay in the house so we know who we're supposed to spare. If anyone's wandering out in the street for any reason, then, then that's on you, not on us. But if you're in the house, you be safe. We promise you have our word. Verse 20, but if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to the oath that you have made us swear. So if you tell anyone, deal us off. We're not, we don't have to, we, you know, we, there's no, no conditions if you tell anyone. There's non-disclosure kind of thing. And she said, according to your words, so be it. And then she sent them away and they departed 
and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Verse 22. They departed and went into the hills and remained there for three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. And then the two men returned and they came down from the hills and they passed over and they came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened. And they said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. They say, listen, Jericho, like... It is ready to fall, right? The people are afraid. They are, they, 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 they see their defeat as being inevitable. Momentum is on our side. If we go now, we'll be able to take, to take them. P.S. By the way, we need to spare, uh, Rahab and everyone that is in her house because she helped us. In Joshua 3, uh, the nation of Israel crosses over the, the Jordan River. In fact, the water is miraculously kind of stopped up, similar to what happened in the Red Sea earlier. Joshua chapter 4, they get across to the other side. They set up a memorial to commemorate to the Lord his faithfulness for letting them uh, in, letting them cross the Jordan and into the promised land. Joshua chapter 5, everyone in the whole nation gets circumcised because they've been wandering around for decades. And so the old people have died. The young people have gotten old. There have been new people who've kind of been born and they're working their way into adulthood. And some of the, you know, some of the traditions and some of the, the rituals that God has kind of prescribed have been, have been neglected over the years. So everyone gets circumcised. And then everyone celebrates the Passover. They're kind of like saying, we entered into the promised land and we're going to plant our flag right here, west of Jordan, right when we're entering into Canaan. We are going to follow God. We're going to obey his covenant. We're going to observe his uh, rituals. They get circumcised. They celebrate the Passover. And then in Joshua chapter 6, they come to Jericho. The, the city that they had just scouted out, that they had just kind of uh, gotten some intel on. It's this big, fortified city, a big, thick... I mean, the wall is so thick that people can live in it. So it's, its wall is, is probably bigger and thicker than your house. That's how, like, thick this wall is. Uh, you know, and, and you, you, you know, the nation of Israel would come up to Jericho and think, we'll never be able to take this city down. We'll never be able to get in, let alone, uh, you know, topple it over, let alone, you know, actually, uh, take, take possession of it. And God says, don't, don't worry about that, right? Just, just march around it, blow your, your trumpets, right? Day after day, march around it. Like don't, don't chisel away at it. Don't try to run it over with yourself. Just march around it, blow your trumpets. And on the seventh day, march around it seven times. And that's where we pick up the story in Joshua chapter six. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of the day and they marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be kept alive. Because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all the silver and all the gold and every vessel of bronze and iron, they are all holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So that's kind of Joshua's instructions, right? Go take the city. The walls will fall before you. Save Rahab like we promised. We're men of our word. We're people of our word. Do not kill Rahab or anyone that's in her family, in her home. But other than Rahab, who you save and spare, 
kill everyone and destroy everything. Right? Don't, don't keep any stuff for yourself. You know, in terms of people, there's two groups of people. Rahab and her family and people you kill. And in terms of stuff, there's two groups of stuff. Right? Stuff that you donate to the treasury of the Lord. Right? Precious metals, valuables, and stuff that you burn and destroy. Don't keep anything. Verse 20, so the people shouted, the trumpets were blown, and as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpets, there was a great shout, and the wall fell flat, so that the people went up into the city. Every man went straight before him, and they captured the city. And they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. They do exactly what Joshua says. They kill everyone, destroy everything. But the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said to them, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the women, the woman, and all who belong to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and they brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought out all of her relatives and they put, put them outside the camp of Israel. Right? You guys know who Rahab is, you know what she looks like, you know where she lives, go get her, bring her out. Verse 24, And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and the gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. Rahab is saved you know, all of her, all of the valuables are donated. Everything else is, is destroyed. People are killed, but Rahab alone is saved. And Rahab has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers from Joshua. She hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Rahab, as a result of this episode, she is folded into the covenant community of Israel, right? She was a Gentile, a pagan, a prostitute. She repents. She turns to God. She turns to the people of God. She aligns herself with God and with the people of God. They welcome her. God himself welcomes her. She becomes a part of the community of Israel. And ultimately, she becomes one of the ancestors of Jesus himself. It's a story of of Rahab, a Gentile, pagan, uh, immoral prostitute, who turns to God, trusts in God, hopes in God, puts all of her trust and all of her hope in God, even when it seems like a crazy proposition, and ultimately she is welcomed into the family of God, and she is an integral part, a critical part of the family of God. If, If there was no Rahab, there would be no Jesus, because she is one of his female ancestors. Now, I'm going to take a minute or two, just like last week, take a minute and just consider some points of application that kind of, that we can lift out of, that we can kind of see kind of lurking in the story uh, of Rahab and why this story should be of encouragement to us and why it should, I mean, and and aside from, again, just the the, the basic reality that that God uh, values women and that we should uh, value women and not overlook them, I want to take some some spiritual principles out of this, this story. And the first is that God is a God who makes covenant promises to his people and, and that he keeps his covenant promises to his people. God, God is a God who makes covenant promises and keeps them to his, his people. 
right? Everything that led up to this story, right? I mean, all the way back to Genesis 12 with Abraham, right? God promises Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you, uh, you know, descendants as, as numerous as the stars in the sky and sand in the, on the shore, right? I'm going to give you a place to live and I'm going to bless your people. They're going to thrive. I'm going to bless the entire world through the people that come from you. The, the Redeemer, the Messiah is going to come from among your people. That's God's covenant to Abraham. Time goes on, Isaac, Jacob, you know, Joseph and Judah, they, they find themselves living in Egypt, being enslaved, right? They find themselves, uh, you know, captured, trafficked, forced into, uh, you know, manual labor, and they're probably there thinking, God has forgotten about us. Any promises that God made to Abraham, God has forgotten about them. God has abandoned them. God doesn't care about it. Maybe God has has found some other people group that he likes more than us. And maybe he has shifted his blessings to them instead of us. God doesn't care about us anymore. And Joshua 2 through 6 is the seed. It's the, it's the initial kind of, uh, you know, it's the initial showing us that God has not forgotten the promises that he made to his people. God remembers his people. He's going to bless them and take care of them. God remembers his promises and he's going to keep them. He's going to keep his word. The story of, of the Israelites taking over Jericho as they come into Canaan is a reminder that God is faithful and God keeps his promises. Which makes it painfully relevant for us as Christians today because we are people that God has made promises to. Right? When God tells Abraham, I'm going to make your people into a great nation and I'm going to plant them here and I'm going to bless the world through them, God keeps that promise. When God tells you, Hebrews 13, I will never leave you or forsake you, you can trust Him. Right? You can believe Him. You can set your hope on the promise that God has made. When you, when you suffer, when you experience persecution, when it feels like God is far away, when it feels like God has forgotten you, you can trust and know that God will never leave you or forsake you. You read through, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, when God promises that the the poor in spirit will inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's a promise you can trust in. Those who mourn will be comforted. Those who hunger for righteousness will be satisfied. Right? When When you're persecuted, your reward will be great in heaven. When God makes those promises to his people, we can count on him and trust that he will keep them. God promises in Romans chapter 5 that, that suffering produces uh, endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, because we can hope in and count on the perfect, faithful love of God. We can count on God to keep those promises. When God promises that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because Jesus has paid for your sin, Jesus has taken the punishment and the condemnation that should have been yours, and now the Holy Spirit has set you free to live with God, you can trust Him to keep that. When God promises that the sufferings of this present life are not even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us, like He says in Romans 8, or when God says that these light and momentary afflictions that you are experiencing are preparing you for an eternal weight of glory that is far beyond all comparison, like He says in 2 Corinthians 4, those are promises that you can trust that God will keep. When God 
Promises that nothing will ever separate you from the love of Christ. Not tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or, or danger or sword or death or life or angels or rulers or things in the future or, or powers or height or depth or anything in all of creation. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. That's a promise that God has made that you can trust that he will keep. Right? We can trust that God will keep His promises that He has made to us because time and time again throughout Scripture, God makes covenant promises to His people and then He keeps them. So Joshua chapter 2-6 through six is entirely relevant because it's a reminder of the character of God, the faithfulness of God, and the fact that God makes promises to His people and then He keeps them. Second, Joshua chapters 2 through 6 is a picture. It's, it's a reminder of, of God's faithfulness to keep his promises, but it's also a picture of how God relates to and interacts with his people. And it's a reminder of how uh, we are to come to God on God's terms rather than presuming to set the terms on how we come to God. All right, think about Think about Rahab for a second. Like, put yourself in her shoes, her experience, her life, kind of before and after this, this episode. Prior to that, she's a Gentile, pagan, prostitute, living in a, in a pagan city. And one day she hears this story, right? She's never heard of Israel before, but she hears this story. There's a group of people called the Israelites. They are advancing on our city. They claim to worship, right? They don't claim like we do to worship a God who is just over their city. Every civilization kind of worship their own local deity. Like his, you know, territory extended like one foot past your city limits. And your God was sovereign over your city. And here's this group that says that they worship the one true God who created the heavens and the earth and everything. They claim that their God is sovereign over our city. They claim that not only they are accountable to him, like everyone did, they claim that we are accountable to their God, right? And here's the kicker, everywhere they've gone, they've been victorious, right? They escaped the the clutches of the most powerful national superpower on the planet of of Egypt. And they, they defeated countries that were way bigger than them. The Red Sea itself miraculously parted so that they could walk through it. And now they're headed our way and they seem like they are intent on destroying our city. That's, that's the story that Rahab hears before she ever even meets these spies from the nation of Israel. And now she has a choice, right? Now, She can think, all right, I am living in a city that admittedly is strong and admittedly is fortified. And from the world's perspective, there aren't too many cities that are more, uh, you know, able to defend themselves than Jericho. But according to the God who, who claims sovereignty over all the world, I'm living in a city that is marked for destruction. I'm living in a city that's going to be destroyed and leveled by the terrible wrath of God because of our sin. And I'm a part of it. And I deserve to be judged and condemned along with this city. And it is going to happen. And I have two choices. I can, I can stay here. I can plant my flag. I can keep, you know, I can keep doing what I'm doing, disregarding God, disregarding the people of God and the law of God and pretend as if the judgment of God is never going to come. Or I can defect. I can, I can, 
cross the picket line. I can, I can align myself with God and His people instead of aligning myself with this city of sin that is marked with destruction and its people. I can, I can settle my accounts with God before it is too late, while there is still time. So that when the people of God come and when the terrible wrath and judgment of God comes on my city, perhaps I will be spared. Perhaps God's wrath will fall everywhere around me, but it won't fall on me because I will have made peace with God beforehand. That's exactly what she does, right? I'll help you. I'll protect you. I'll hide you from the the authorities that are looking to take your life. And in return, will you please protect me? And they say, sure, right? But here are the the conditions. Here are the terms, right? We will spare you. We will show you mercy if you hang this cord out of your window. If you... You hide inside your house, right? If you do, if you come to God, if you kind of acknowledge and kind of interact with us on these terms that we set forward, we will spare you. God's wrath will not. It's like the Passover, right? If you put the the blood on your doorframe and if you stay in your home, the wrath of God will pass over you. I don't know if you realize it or not. But you, like Rahab, are living in a city, you're living in a world that is marked for destruction. Right? A world that is going to be reduced to to rubble. And every single person in it, like Jericho, is going to be killed, slaughtered, crushed by the terrible wrath of God. You're living in a world that is, that like Jericho, is hopelessly marred by sin and is marked by rebellion against God and rejection of God. You're living in a world where people are constantly setting themselves up as gods and seeking to sit on the throne that rightfully belongs to God. And you're not just living in it. You, like Rahab, are a part of it. You're participating in it. You are rebelling against God. You are rejecting God. You are trying to set yourself up as God. You are trying to sit on the throne that belongs to God. And you, like Rahab, like Jericho, are going to be destroyed. God is going to return, and every mouth will be silenced before Him. That includes me and and you, and everyone will be exposed, and we'll have to give an account to Him. That includes me and includes you. And every single person will be seen for who we really are, and we will be condemned and judged and punished, right? Shown to have, to have sinned against a God that is infinitely holy, and thereby deserve a punishment that is infinite. And we'll be sentenced to hell for all of eternity, right? That was the the wrath and punishment that was coming on the citizens of Jericho and Rahab. And that's the wrath and punishment that is coming on all people, all of humanity, including you and me. Unless you are like Rahab. Unless you defect. Unless you sever ties with the city of destruction that you're living in, sever ties with the world, sever ties with your current way of life, and come to God now while there is still time. Unless you negotiate peaceful terms for your own surrender like Rahab did with these Israelite spies. God said to Rahab, here's the terms. Put out this red cord, hide in your house, and you'll be spared from wrath. And God is saying to you, here are the terms. Turn from your sin. 
confess it to God, repent of it, turn from it, trust in Jesus. Stop trusting in yourself. Stop trusting in your righteousness. Stop trusting in your spirituality. Stop trusting in your good works. Trust in Jesus that he paid the penalty for your sin. Identify with him publicly, just like Rahab has to put out this red cord. You have to identify publicly with Jesus through through baptism, through church membership, right? Right. Say to everyone, I am with God. I have defected away from the world. The world no longer has my allegiance. God has my allegiance. I belong to him. He belongs to me. I have, I have died to my former way of life. I've been raised in newness with life through the power of the Holy Spirit. I am a follower of Jesus now. And then, like Rahab, hid in her house, hide in Christ. Hold fast to Christ. When, when the wrath of God falls on everything around you, hold fast to Jesus and hide in His sufficiency. Cling to Jesus. Trust in Him. Hold fast to Him because He is your only hope. Outside of, Christ, right, outside of, of these specific terms that the Israelites gave to Rahab, she had no hope. She had certain death and destruction. And outside of Christ and the terms that God has given you on how to come to Him through Christ, you have no hope. You have certain death and destruction. Jesus is your only hope, and Jesus is your only promise of eternal life. So, so be like Rahab. Come to God on His terms, trust in Christ, identify with Him, hide in Him, so that you will be spared from the wrath of God. So one, God uh, makes covenant promises and then keeps them to uh, align with God, come to him on his terms so that you'll be spared from the wrath of God. And then finally, uh, like Rahab, live out your faith. Right? Live and walk in newness of life that is, uh, you know, that correlates with uh, the, the faith that you have and the faith that you that you proclaim, the faith that you uh, espouse, right? Ray, Rahab had every opportunity, every step of the way to walk her decision back, right? As soon as the Israelites came to her house, she could have immediately, you know, called the cops. She could have immediately sounded the alarm. Spies are here. I don't want any part of this. I don't want to be identified with them. I don't want, I don't want to be punished with them. And, and you know, kind of you know, went right to the, informed on them right away to the, to the authorities. Or when the authorities came to her house, she could have told them everything, right? Probably could have negotiated a pretty nice, a pretty soft landing spot for herself as well. Here's, you know, these guys work directly for the king. The king is far and away the richest man in any city. Most cities, most civilizations in this time were comprised of, of a rich guy. And maybe the people right immediately around him were all super rich. And the vast majority of people were all poor. So here's the, the richest guy, hundreds, thousands of times richer than you, who wants a favor from you. And she could have easily, you know... Hey, like I, like I can point you in the direction of these Israelite spies if you X, Y, and Z, right? If you, you kind of set me up in a better living situation, you know, give me a financial windfall so that I can quit my job, so that my family and I will be set up for life. Could have easily negotiated something like that. If you do that, I'll tell you where these enemies are and, and where you can find them and how you can kind of neutralize them before they advance. My guess is the king, being as rich as he was, would have easily said, sure, 
Like, it, it costs me nothing, right? I'm super rich, you're super poor, I can change your life in, in a, a dramatic way, and it will cost me very little. So give me the intel that you have, and I'll give you, I'll, I'll change your life dramatically. Could have done that, but instead, Rahab held fast. Rahab trusted God, Rahab aligned with God, and she was loyal to God. And that's the picture of Rahab that the New Testament paints, Hebrews 11. By faith, the prostitute Rahab did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Rahab had faith in God, and then she lived out her faith in God. James 2, Rahab the prostitute lived out her faith and demonstrated it through good works. When she received the messengers and sent them out another way, Rahab had faith in God and then lived out her faith. One of your elders put it, put it this way. Rahab was considered righteous by giving lodging to the spies and then sending them off in a different direction. If it had been discovered by the king of Jericho that she had aided the spies, I assume that she would have surely been put to death. And from looking at things naturally, sticking with Jericho certainly must have appeared to be a safer bet. Huge walls and a trained army against a bunch of wandering nomads in the desert. But somehow she had heard about the God of Israel and she believed in the God of Israel. She believed that no city and no wall, no matter how high or how protected, could ever defend against the one true and living God. And Rahab put her life and the life of her family into the hands of this God rather than into her own hands or into the hands of her people. And her faith was proven genuine by her works. So Rahab trusts God, and then she demonstrates that trust by living a life that is consistent with trusting God. And ultimately, when ultimately she is enfolded into the nation of Israel. She marries Salmon, right? They have a son named Boaz. We're going to meet Boaz in greater detail next week with the story of Ruth. But Boaz uh, has a child who has a child who has a child. I mean, kind of on and on generations, and eventually you get to Jesus. You get to to Mary and Joseph, a manger in Bethlehem, God himself coming to dwell with us, coming to save us from our sin and reconcile us to God forever. None of that would have happened were it not for Rahab, were it not for the faith of Rahab, and were it not for Rahab living out her faith and trusting God. So there's a lot we can learn from from Joshua 2 through 6, but the main kind of highlights that we want to take away are that God makes covenant promises to his people and then he keeps them because he can be trusted. And that God sets the terms on how we as his people are to come to him and to be spared from his wrath. God instructs us to turn from our sin, trust in Jesus, identify with him, hold fast to him, and hide in the sufficiency of his death. And then finally, God instructs us to live out our faith and walk in newness of life in the power of the Holy Spirit. He instructs us to love God more than we love the world and to place our life into God's hands rather than our own hands or the hands of of the world. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are faithful and sovereign and that you can be trusted to keep your promises. And Lord, we, uh, we cling to
the promises that you have made to us in your word. Lord, we come to you this morning uh, on the on the terms that you have set. We recognize, Lord, that we cannot be good enough. We cannot be smart enough. We cannot be spiritual enough. And we recognize, Lord, that we are on a sinking ship. Right? We, we are living in a city marked for destruction. And so we come to you. We turn from our sin. We trust in Christ. We ask you humbly to save us from our sin. Spare us from your wrath. And then help us to live new lives marked by righteousness for your glory. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.